All right. Well, I'm glad to see you. Uh, it's been a while, at least a week, and I heard we had a Q&A last week. I was in the Boston-Baltimore uh, area the week before. Um, we launched the Master's Fellowship New England and uh, the Master's Fellowship Mid-Atlantic. Um, you've probably heard me say this, but our heart is to see pastors with common convictions and common affections come together in common benefit. A lot of our grace church-like pastors are functioning independently as a Bible church. They don't really have community to support them, perhaps a little bit like uh, the announcements we heard, families that don't have support when they need it. And if you're a master's grad, a TMS grad, or someone who believes the convictions that make us distinctive, the exclusivity and person and work of Jesus Christ, exposes preaching, um, the way we do church practically, the way we study God's Word um, from week to week, it's rare. And uniting the men, both nationally and internationally, who share those convictions is important. Um, we lose too many pastors annually because there's not a support system. And uh, part of my passion as a pastor is to see pastors partnering, connected, for brotherhood, fellowship, belonging, um, leadership development. If you're a leader, you never stop learning. Um, and leaders learn from other leaders. And uh, Dr. MacArthur, our pastor, is uh, committed to spending a portion of these significant years as with 50 years of experience reaching back and investing in other men. So Carl Hargrove and Harry were in uh, outside of Boston, a little place called Boylston, Massachusetts, with uh, Mike Abendroth and 30 pastors from New England. By the way, the foliage and the green. Uh, I, I went to school in New England. I'd forgotten. Um, almost camped out there for a while. It was just really, really beautiful. Uh, but 30-plus pastors came in from as far away as New Hampshire and Maine, and we uh, piped John in, Dr. MacArthur, via the technology at the bottom of the seminary building. There's a studio, so he talked to them. And we had just a great connection, and we did that again in Baltimore. And uh, so it was just a great, great trip to see God's men connected. And uh, there is, and I'll just tell you this, as we pray about the church in the future, it's uh, real exciting to see the heartbeat of pastors to come together to support one another. Um, we launched Colorado in July, Nebraska in September, um, Houston, Dallas, Texas. Um, forget where we're going to Atlanta in January, then down to Florida. So a lot of guys all over. Mark Tatlock has a heart for this with uh, our missionaries that they would have the opportunity to be connected. It's really exciting. So you pray for us when sometimes I travel. It's really about launching and connecting pastors who will serve one another. And then obviously Grace Church is a central hub, the seminary, the university. Grace to you. We provide assets and support for them in ways that otherwise they wouldn't have. So it's a tremendous ministry. It's not a denomination. It's a fellowship uh, of senior pastors who love God and love the same thing. So that's where I was, and glad to be back with you today. James chapter 1. Oh, by the way, Han read the verse. I'm going to read it again to you. Uh, real Christianity tries proactively, maybe not tries, 
does proactively engage in ministries like you just heard about this morning. Um, you, like I, will have a difficult time sometimes engaging practically with care ministries. How do you do that? Where do you engage? Who do you trust? Who do you partner with? And uh, I was very encouraged to hear what we just heard because it provides a vehicle, um, some place you can trust, some way you can get involved. And uh, I just find it interesting. I'm not going to do verse 27 today, but I will talk about it in the days to come. Um, but here it sits as a, an evidence of real Christianity. So let's read verses 26 and 27. This is going to be my third installment on verse 26. I think it will be my last. Um, and then we'll forge into verse 27. But uh, this is the Bible, which means it has authority over you. It's the truth. It's gifted to you by God so that you know the mind of God and you can live in a way that pleases God. This is not recommendations or proposals. This is divine authoritative truth that is meant to govern and guide your life. This is not a take it or leave it passage. This is the revelation of the mind of God as he would desire us to have it. The spokesperson is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, one of the most prominent Christians in the world at that time. This is an early book, which means the church had just been birthed in Jerusalem. They've been dispersed like seed due to persecution. The leader of the early church, its chief spokesperson by way of the church at Jerusalem, James, is communicating so the church understands what real Christians ought to live and look like, how they ought to think, how they ought to behave. If you're truly transformed by grace through faith, if you have genuine saving faith, what should it look like? That's what this book is. This is a, a primer of how a Christian ought to live. This is a description fundamentally and foundationally of what a Christian ought to look like. How do you know if you're a Christian? If you are a Christian, what are the priorities you ought to pursue? This is that book. It is foundational. There are many things that book doesn't talk about, doesn't talk about the church, doesn't talk about elders, doesn't talk about things that will come later through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is early. This is foundational. This is 108 powerful, pithy, full of truth, encouragements, exhortations, challenges, 60 imperatives, 60 things to say, hey, you need to do this or you must not do this. If you claim Christ, this is how you ought to live. If you want a theme for James, I'm calling it real Christianity, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. This is the measuring stick of genuine faith. Kanye West, a Christian? Well, how do you know? I had Adam Tyson with me in chapel on Wednesday. Um, Kanye calls Adam his pastor. Uh, Adam meets with him now every other week to do significant Bible study. I said, so Adam, what do you think? He said, I think he's saved, Harry. The fruit of what I see in his life, not just the claims of his mouth or his words. He just released an album called Jesus is King. That doesn't make him a Christian, but his 
behavioral change. He has people in his life who are going, this guy's different. He uh, had Adam work through. The reason the album took so long to be released is because he kept wanting to make sure that the album was rooted in the biblical revelation of truth. I never want again to do an album that doesn't promote the gospel, that doesn't evoke worship, and doesn't reflect what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's a good thing. In the making of the album, uh, he asked those who participated to refrain from the kind of normative behavior that uh, sometimes people behave immorally just because they're a part of producing an album doesn't mean they're a Christian. Kanye asked them to refrain from normative, immoral behavior while they're working on the album. That's cool. Cool is a theological term for amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. He, uh, he told the group of people that he travels with, I'm different because of what God has done for me. I used to think I was the God of the culture, and now I've met the God over everything. That's also cool. To which he added this. This is my transition to the verses we are going to read. Don't cuss around me. Those words are not fitting. I'm a Christian, and I don't want to hear that anymore. You know what that is? Cool. You see, because, and I'm not telling you that because I'm able to see what only the Spirit of God can see. And I understand why everybody's nervous, because when you have such a high-profile person living in that kind of an environment, the probability is high that they'll be stumbling. First of all, if he is a Christian, he's vulnerable to what young Christians are vulnerable to. This is immaturity. You say and do things. Adam was telling me Wednesday, he said, you know, Harry, think about this. You have a guy who can go anywhere, do anything, meet with anybody he wants. He can call the president. He has his number. We were talking about Bob Dylan. You remember that name, Bob Dylan? Yeah, Bob did a Christian album. Did you know that? He testified that he had become a Christian. He did a Christian album. It was good. It was right there with no compromise. And uh, then he walked away. And uh, Adam was asking Kanye about that, and he said, you know what? We need to go see Bob Dylan. I'm going to call him. We're going to go see him, you and me. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> now, I tell you that to not promote Kanye West. I say that to say there are evidences that ought to mark true conversion. And it is not simply the claims of your lips. That's what James is about. You say you have faith, but if that verbal affirmation is not complemented with real-life transformation, your faith is vain. It's empty. It's dead. It's useless. If you say you have faith, show me. 
There is no such thing as transformed by grace faith that doesn't manifest itself. James is the evidence of such faith. Real Christians succeed with trials and difficulty. Financially, physically, they handle trial differently. That's how James begins. Listen, trials are hard. Some of you are in very difficult places. But you know what your faith does in difficult places? If it's real, it sustains you. Pastor I was with in Baltimore, Tom Leake, is dying of cancer. Had 300 people there on a Saturday. We had pastors Friday night for dinner. Guess who didn't show up? The host pastor, Tom Leake. Why? He was in such pain from his cancer and the treatment of it, he couldn't function. He was doing the last plenary session on Saturday. Founder of this church, 22 years in this church. Didn't make any of the meetings. You know why? Severe pain. Went to the ER. Being a Christian does not insulate you from difficulty. But being a Christian guarantees you that God is with you and will orchestrate, if you'll cooperate, that difficulty to accomplish a work that otherwise wouldn't be accomplished. Doesn't matter how hard it is, what matters is the way you see your difficulty, the way you see your God, and the way you see yourself as an instrument that God wants to make better. That's how a Christian thinks. Not perfectly, not always there, but that's the drumbeat of their heart. Can anybody say amen to that? Christians think differently. They face financial challenges. James talks about that, verses 9 through 11. Let the poor guy say, hey, I'm a believer. I'm a son of God. I'm the heir of everything. Let him glory in that. You're a rich guy. You better find humility in the fact that you're temporal and your money doesn't matter when it comes to eternal things. Temptation, where's it come from? Inside, not God. Real Christianity overcomes the temptations of the flesh. Here's another statement Kanye made. I was addicted to pornography and sex. You know what happened when Jesus saved me? He set me free. You know what that is? Somebody ought to say cool. (laughs) That is cool. Because real Christianity affects the enslaving power of sin in your life. We just did a week at Masters on addiction. Because real Christianity has something to say about addiction. We talked about pot. We talked about alcohol. We talked about alcohol is the third largest preventable death in the world. Christians can get challenged by that. Some of you have been challenged by that. You get hooked on painkillers. You get hooked on other things dependent on Starbucks, caffeine. (laughs) Dave, I saw you bring that big cup in. Your first hit, or was that your second one? How about Krispy Kreme donuts? Yeah, no, Krispy Kreme's not on the list. (laughs) Do all of those you want. Real Christians overcome temptation. The normative, practical evidence of Christ in you is freedom, not to do what you want. But freedom to live as a Christian ought to live because of the transforming power of the gospel. 
because of the power of the word of God to set you free. You will know the truth, John 8, and that truth will do what? Set you free. Real Christians, verse 18 of this first chapter, are changed by the word of truth. And they are changing by the application and the doing and the knowing of that truth. Real Christians are changed and are changing. Verse 26, here I am, finally got there. Here's what else real Christians do. They manifest real religion in these ways. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself, this is a strong conviction. You actually believe this about yourself. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, that's devout. That's in church on Sunday, dressed appropriately. With your Bible open, singing the hymns, you're serious. That word religious, it's a serious God-fearing worshiper. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet, here's a contrast, does not bridle his tongue. Bridle means to control. Bridle means to manage. It is literally what you think it is, what is used to control a horse. Does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. In other words, if you don't control your tongue, you are self-deceived. Both of those are in the present tense. You need to consistently bridle your tongue. If you're not, you're consistently deceiving yourself, which is the worst kind of deception. And this man's religion is what? Say it. Worthless. You know what worthless is? No value. No value for what? Not this life or the life to come. It is vanity. It is the worst kind of self-deception. And the evidence is by way of affirmation, validation of what you are and the faith that you claim is manifested right here. The normative pattern of how you control your tongue. So we are walking through what real Christians do. What it is that you bridle your tongue from? What is it that you inhibit? And remember, real Christians control their tongue, but not perfectly. James 3 says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to control his own body. So we do stumble. Our tongue sometimes will reflect something that is not Christian, but it's not the normative pattern. It's not the regular trajectory. My son, Parker, who said, Dad, I'm a fan. I'm praying for him. I want him to do good. I'm nervous because he has such a high profile, referring to Kanye again. He used an uh, inappropriate for a Christian word the other day, and he said, my scorecard today as a Christian wasn't very good, but it'll be better tomorrow. Sometimes we aren't what we want to be. We all stumble in many ways. If you say that you can control your tongue perfectly, that is a deception too. So we're bridling our tongue. So what do real Christians consistently bridle their tongue from? And I gave you several. I'm just going to highlight them and then we're going to jump in. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from much speech. Too much talking, too many words. Proverbs 17:27 a man of knowledge restrains his words. 
Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from rash words. These are words without enough thought. No filter speech. Be slow to speak. That's in this chapter, verse 19. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from hurtful words. First Peter calls these evil words. These are words that injure. These are retaliation words. This is evil for evil, insult for insult. You don't use words as weapons because somebody's injured you. You bridle your tongue. Real Christians, number four, consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from manipulative or deceptive words. These are tricky words. These are the words that cause someone to believe or decoy people into believing that you're safe and trustworthy when in fact you're a threat. You're just deceptive. You look Christian, but your lips are deceitful. Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil, that's injurious speech, and your lips from deceitful speech, meaning I present one thing, and in fact, I'm another. Five, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from destructive words, words that tear down the spirit, words that injure the heart and soul, Christians are to only speak words that make souls stronger. Let no corrupt communication, no corrupt communication, no rotten, spoiled, foul speech proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for, here it is, building up, edifying, strengthening someone, affirming them. And it must minister grace to those who hear which is number six, grace. Real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from grace-stealing words, words that steal the joy of God's favor and the delight of God's grace. Christians ought to be grace-givers. Kanye says, the greatest criticism I face is from supposed Christian brothers and sisters. The harshest language I've heard are not from the people in the industry that I was a part of, but from the community that I've become a part of. You know what that is? Not cool. Grace-stealing words ought not be a part of what we live like or speak like. All right, turn over with me to, oh, let me read verse 27. Stay there. I'm going to read it because I want to say what Han added, because I want you to sign up for Hands of Hope and Safe Families. What was it? Safe what? Care Families, yeah. It was a good announcement today, both of you. Rusty, thank you. This, verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion. This is the real stuff. In the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans, I'm calling that visit the vulnerable and widows in their distress, timeliness. That's why I like those ministries so much. That's exactly where this is. And to keep yourself unstained by the world. So here's real Christianity. You visit the vulnerable, you help the helpless, and you stay unstained. That's walking out your faith. All right, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. 
and we're going to jump back in. Verse 29. I quoted it. We'll read it, setting us up to have travel into chapter 5. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. It's timely, it's fitting, that it may give grace to those who hear, grace giving, not grace stealing. I talked about this last time, verse 30, the connective chi, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which is to say, if your words are not soul-strengthening and grace-giving, you grieve God deeply. We talked about that deep distress used in the Septuagint of a woman birthing a child, a lot of pain. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and anger and be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So verse 30, don't grieve God. Verses 31 and 32, be like God. How? By graciously forgiving one another. Verses 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, and by selflessly loving one another. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like your father walk in love just as christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to god as a fragrant aroma act like the firstborn brother act like god be like god graciously forgive one another selflessly love one another now verses three and four don't dishonor god there must be no filthiness Excuse me, verse 3. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Verses 3 and 4 say this is the way you need to behave as a consequence of what God has done for you. You need to manifest the qualities of real Christianity by way of how you behave and, verse 4, by how you talk. No filthiness. These are crass, what we would call cuss words. This word is used one time, as we noted last time. It's a word for general obscenity, filthiness, gutter speak, baseness, dishonor. You have to go to extra biblical literature to find out how this works. And what you can come up with is these are the low words of a culture. Every culture has words they consider to be crude, crass, vulgar, and indecent. Those words that come out of, that are invented by human beings because human beings in every culture have had words that reflect things that ought not to be said in that culture. They are offensive. These are the four-letter words. These are the rude words. These are the unbecoming words, not fitting for a Christian. This is not language that builds up. This is language that's inconsistent with what a Christian is. We call it profanity. 
Five times in the New Testament, these are words you don't use in front of the temple of God or in the house of God. So if you can't say it at Grace Church, don't say it. Number eight, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from, and I'm going to use this word. In my Bible, it translates it silly talk. Some of your Bibles may say foolish speaking. I'm going to say stupid speech. Ironically, we're not allowed to use stupid at my house. It's one of those inflammatory words. You're stupid, that's stupid. doesn't tend to facilitate good harmony in your house. I'm using stupid for emphasis because this word is used one time also. And you know what it means? Stupid. Senseless. This is foolish talking, morologia, moro from moros or moron. Look, if I said you're a moron, that's not a, an affirming statement, is it? It's not a grace-giving statement. You've ever called him a moron? I'm teasing. <laughs> moron is an English term which means dull, senseless, Mentally inert. In other words, there's not a lot happening right here. Inert. Dull in understanding, nonsensical. Listen to this definition of moros. Lacking a grip on reality. Acting as though you were brainless. This is the word moron or moros and logia, which means to speak. To speak as if you know when in fact you don't know. Let me give you a definition of stupid speak. Empty words from an empty head. How by using lightweight words or making weighty words light. The speech of a fool is the speech that flows out of a sluggish heart or mind. It has lost its grip or edge on reality. It's flat. It's insipid. It's tasteless. It's the talk of the foolish. It is the kind of talk that you would expect at summer camp junior high. It's foolishness. It's lightweight words. It's the kind of talk which is not suited, listen to this, to instruct, to edify, or to profit. Barnes writes, this is the talk of someone who has no sense of elevated thought and a low sense of right and wrong. Foolish talking is not so much a designed thing, it's just the way it is when someone is not focused on the things that matter, but the things that are light, hollow, and don't matter. Think National Enquirer. You ever see that on the checkout line? Whatever the headlines are, it's whatever Miley's doing today or whatever Justin's doing today or whether Haley really likes Selena. Are you with me? You're saying, how do you know that? Because I check out and I buy food and it's right there in the National Enquirer. You know what that is? Foolish. 
there's some things that ought not become a part of your regular conversations because they just don't matter. Most celebrity news news feeds are full of foolish talk. Taylor Swift has 246 million followers on her social media. I wonder how many edifying build you up comments are made on those or the Kardashians or whatever. There's a realm of communication and expression that is not to be a part of a Christian's regular conversation. Not because it's inherently evil, it's because it inherently doesn't matter. Foolish speak is also, and this is a big one, making weighty words light. Foolish speaking or stupid speech, let me give you an example, like taking the name of the Lord in vain, like using hell in a way that's not recognizing it's a real place of eternal torment, saying damn or using the name of Jesus in a light way, Making weighty words throwaway words. There's a lack of coherence and harmony between the way they are being used and the weight that they should carry. There are some big things you ought not belittle. If you say certain words, you need to acknowledge there is weight in those words. Listen. I'm reading uh, Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments, why they matter and how you apply them. And, you know, the Ten Commandments, there are 10 of them, and 14% of Americans can tell you that what they are. The rest cannot. The first four are about God. This is the way the creator and maker of everything, the one who is God alone says, this is my moral law. This is the way you ought to live. This is what matters to me. This is what I deserve, and this is what I desire. Ten of them, etched in stone with the finger of God, still in force, still in play, not destroyed or abolished. This is what he says. Number one, Me and me alone. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, I want to be worshipped the way I want to worship. You can't make this up. Don't go making yourself a graven image or some replacement, some icon that substitutes for me. Don't do that. And don't take my name in what? Vain. Don't take what represents me. And gut it of its weight and force. Treat my name like you would treat me. Don't speak it carelessly. My name matters. How you use it matters because it represents me. I Ubered with a guy early and flew out of Baltimore at 625 in the morning last Sunday. And uh, he just spoke my Savior's name, Jesus. And he was not saying it as a, an affection or an expression of honor or affirmation. It was just a throwaway word. That's this. Real Christians 
Don't make weighty words light. Don't tell somebody to go to hell. That's too weighty to say to anybody. If you understand what you say, amen? That's foolish speak. That is not fitting. It matters to God, and it still matters to God. Number nine, real Christians consistently bridle their tongue by refraining from sexually suggestive speech. Verse four, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Guess how many times this word is used in the Bible? Once, right here. Two words put together, well-turned is the meaning. You have the word well with the word turn. It's a good turn of words. We would know it as innuendo, double entendre. That is where you say one thing and it has two meanings, an innocent meaning and a perverse meaning. Meaning, a good turn of words, a double meaning, your use of these words, which results in a perverse expression, sexual or perverse innuendo. It is inappropriate, coarse, jesting. It's said in a way that implies innocence when in fact it is a wit which is to express wantonness or lewdness or crudeness. I've written it this way, wit with wantonness. Sexuendo innuendo has acquired a specific meaning, that of risque double entendre by playing on a possible sexual interpretation of an otherwise innocent uttering. And you know what? I have examples. I'm just not comfortable using them. But you've got a restaurant that goes by a certain name that represents an owl, but it's not really about an owl. That's this. Christians are not ever to say things that pervert the sanctity of intimacy in a way that's for a good laugh or humor. Bridle your tongue when it is with wantonness, lewd, and unrestrained lust. It's designed to excite it. It's about wit and getting a laugh. It's inconsistent with the truth. It's inconsistent with the scriptures. It's inconsistent with your neighbor's edification. It provokes potentially fleshly lust, not acceptable. Bridle your tongue from that. Some of you may be quick-witted. Ask the Lord to set a guard over your mouth. It ought not be used ever. Let me summarize these things this way, and John Piper puts it this way. There's some things that a Christian ought to bridle their tongue about. He's referring to this section. One, don't debase and cheapen great realities. Two, do not use culturally recognized, crude, off-color, vulgar, or offensive terms. Ask yourself, does this for the sake of humor or entertainment by innuendo pervert the sacred or noble to become common or cheap? 
Piper concludes by saying, we live to cherish Christ and the gospel above all. That should mean that grace is abounding in our hearts and most of the language that is offensive and questionable is simply contrary to ministering grace and living out of grace. 1776, General George Washington, August 3rd, put out a book on how the troops ought to conduct themselves. This is what he said, I quote, The general is sorry to be informed that the foolish and wicked practice of profane swearing, a vice hitherto little known in the American army, is growing into fashion. He, the general, hopes the officers will, by example as well as influence, endeavor to check it, and that both they, the officers, and the men will reflect that we have little hope of the blessing of heaven on our arms if we insult it by our impiety and profanity. Added to this, says Washington, it is a vice so mean and low without temptation that every man of sense and character will detest and despise it. End quote. I wrote in my notes, if these profane words, these perverse words are unacceptable to an esteemed general, how much more to a holy king? Listen, Christian, you not only ought to talk different, you ought to promote talking different. Mr. Uber, you just named my king. When you use the name of Jesus, you're using my favorite person's name. Please regard it with respect. I mean no offense, but I want you to understand that the name you just voiced in that way is infinitely precious to me. Please respect it. It matters to me. And your tip is tied to that. Let me give you a couple of things in closing to remember. I got one more category, so this is not my last one. Because I'm going to talk about bridle your tongue from gossip and slander. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But let me give you a couple of things that a Christian ought to pray out of. The real Christian's daily perspective. A failure to bridle your tongue can destroy. Proverbs 18.21. You ought to memorize these verses to help guard and promote character in your words and choices. Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. What that means is you'll either inherit blessing and, or loss, death or life, defined by this. The real Christian's daily resolve, I will bridle my tongue. It matters to the glory of God among the wicked. Listen to Psalm 39.1. I said, said the psalmist, I will watch my ways so that I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle which is like a bridle, as long as the wicked are present. You know what he was saying? 
I don't want to defame the God who is worthy of worship by using words that diminish him in the eyes of the wicked. The real Christian's daily prayer, and I'll close with this, daily ask God to help you bridle your tongue. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. James 3, it's a little member with lots of horsepower. It takes grace and the Spirit of God and the Word of God and depending on God to speak like a Christian ought to speak. Cornerstone, whether you're at church today, you're at the office tomorrow, you're in the confines of your own home where nobody can hear but your family, talk like a Christian ought to talk. No filthiness, no moronic speech, and God forbid, coarse jesting, because they are not fitting for a real Christian. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you for the opportunity to re-engage what a real Christian ought to live, think like. Convictions. And Lord, some of us come out of homes and backgrounds where our tongue was worldly and carnal and unrestrained, unfiltered. Lord, would you mature all of us. And Lord, for those of us that have been Christians a long time and have learned the kind of the art of avoiding certain things that are obviously unacceptable and replacing them with substitutes that are, Lord, would you check our heart and our tongue for the euphemisms, the words that substitute for the weighty words. And God, for some of us, We've bought into the culture of supposed freedom, reckless speech, ignoble words. Our world is crude and rude, whether it's from the office of the president all the way down to the lowest places of society. And somehow, instead of influencing the culture, we've been influenced by it. Lord, remind us that it is out of our heart that our mouth speaks. So, Lord, when we use words that are incongruous with a faith-filled, grace-changed heart, would you convict us? And, Lord, would you use us to encourage one another? Because there's not a perfect man in the room, not a perfect woman or a young man. We all need to be taught and trained and matured. And part of real Christianity is sanctifying relationships. The family of God helping members of the family to live and look like Christ. Give us the courage and the grace to speak the truth in love, to wound with the love of a friend, to rebuke as necessary in a winsome way that helps someone become what they're saved to be, a real Christian. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.